What I'd love to do is begin with reading Luke chapter 13. Would you open your Bibles? And we'll be in Luke uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Just one more thing on Luke. Um, you'll know that we kind of weave in and out of series that are more thematic. So we are talking a lot about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus and to be uh, shaped by Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus. And so we do different kinds of series that help us along the way. But when we're not in those series, we're in the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because we, we love Jesus and we wanna spend a lot of time with Jesus and we wanna keep listening to Jesus' story. So we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a couple years now, uh, in and out of Luke. And so we're back in Luke chapter 13 and we'll read verses one to nine. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate has, had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So this is the word of the Lord. And today, North Langley, we are diving into a difficult topic, and the topic is repentance. We're gonna talk about repentance today. Join me in prayer. Holy God, as we come and we listen to your words, we pray that you would give us a heart of repentance, a longing to walk in the light, a joy as we walk in freedom. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would remove the lies of the enemy that seeks to condemn and bring your gentle conviction, the gentle conviction of a father that loves us. And we pray that we would hear only your truth and that you would remove the lies of the enemy. And we thank you and trust you, amen. Okay, so here we are with Jesus, and we'll just begin with the first three verses. So what we're gonna do right now, just to give you a lay of the land, we're gonna look at this exegetically. It means we're gonna just focus on the passage. What is Jesus saying? What is he doing? What does it mean? And then the second half of the sermon, we're gonna talk about repentance, okay? So let's do this. Verses one to three. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So what's happening here? Well, in verse one, we read about Galileans whose blood had mixed with their sacrifices. All right, so <laughs> this, this kind of sentence or phrase is very foreign to our day-to-day -day life. So what is happening? Well, for those of you who are new to Jesus, Galilee is an area in the northern part of Israel. It's where Jesus grew up. Uh, it's around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, 
Remember that Israel, the people of Israel, the Jews, were occupied by the Roman Empire at this time in history. And so you would, you would see Roman soldiers everywhere, and the, the empire uh, had a governor in, um, in Judea named Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the area of Jerusalem, of Judea. He was in charge. Um, and so uh, whatever he said happened, and he was the image of the empire there in the land. A Jewish historian named Josephus shows that Pilate would irritate the Jewish people, right? He loved to make them angry and provoke them. And Josephus also wrote that Galileans in the north, so these are Jesus's people, these are his neighbors, they were always craving for revolution. They were ready to fight at any moment. Uh, they were, if they were provoked by Rome, they would take action. And so the story seems to be that these pilgrims from Galilee were coming to worship in the temple. They were going to travel south to the city of Jerusalem, and they were going to come worship in the temple. And it seems like they were slaughtered in the temple. They were killed while they came to worship. So just imagine Jews being slaughtered in a temple, their own blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices of animals. A horrific picture if you were a Jew. And so somebody comes up and shares this story with Jesus. Just imagine today if people were killed in a church, right? What kind of anger would rise up in you? The injustice of it. Jesus then actually shares another story. Let's look at verses four to five. He says this, or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Okay, well, what's going on here? 18 died when a tower fell on them. Like, this is tragic. This is a tragic story. Why is Jesus bringing it up? All right, so in your mind, go with me to the city of Jerusalem. In the heart of the city is an area of the city called Siloam. Some of you may know of a pool of Siloam that's mentioned elsewhere in, in the scriptures. And you need to know that Pilate, the Roman governor, was, was building an aqueduct system in the city of Jerusalem. And in order to build that aqueduct system, he actually stole money from the Jewish temple in order to build the aqueduct at Siloam. And it seems to be that there was a moment where there was a construction accident. A tower that's being built in the center of Jerusalem falls and crushes innocent civilians, 18 of them. Craig Keener, theologian, writes, he says, the tower in Siloam may have been on Jerusalem's city wall above the pool of Siloam. It may have been associated with Pilate's construction of an improved water supply system. So here's the deal. Walls are crumbling on Jewish, innocent Jews, right? And Pilate is behind the tragedy, right? Pilate's connected to this tragedy. He had stolen money from the temple. Now, in both of these incidents, you can feel Jesus uh, read the crowd, right? And he's like, here's the deal. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He does this twice, once about the Galileans and once about the Tower of Siloam. And he says, I tell you no. Jesus, these people who suffered, they must be bad people, right? 
They must be much worse than we are. Look at how they died. This is a very ancient assumption in the world that still carries on to today. It carries on in our lives. If something bad happens to someone, it must mean like it's bad karma. It was coming to them. They must have done some bad things, right? And Jesus says, no, no. These are awful events, right? But these people are not any worse than anyone else walking around the streets, right? Are they sinners? Sure, but so are you, right? And so Jesus kind of flattens things out here. All are sinners, right? But he, did, he makes a double move, which is super interesting. He says, none of these people who died tragically are worse sinners than anyone else, and you're all sinners, right? And so what is he doing? I believe that Jesus, as a really good teacher, he's using these two tragedies to warn people that the entire people of Israel are headed in a dangerous direction. What does that mean? Two tragedies. One, a violent act from an enemy, Pilate, and the other, a construction accident that was anchored in Pilate's uh, terrible, evil stealing from the temple treasury, right? Both are connected to Pilate. Both are connected to the Roman Empire. Both are connected to the enemies of Israel. And so here's what you need to know. Jesus sees Israel the people of God, as a nation that's collapsing in on itself. Why is that? Because he's watching his own people become violent. He's watching his own people stew with hatred. He's watching his own neighbors filled with bitterness and ready to take up swords. They're moving to swords to solve their problems. And Jesus knows that if they move in this direction, destruction is going to come. If you continue to move in violence towards the Roman Empire, they will respond in violence and destruction will come. You can expect a whole lot more blood mixed in with your sacrifices. You can expect a whole lot more walls to come crushing down upon you. If you continue to live this way, it's not going to go well for you. And this is so important. Jesus believes that Israel is headed towards destruction, and he's right. And this is massive, massively important to understand. Only 40 years after Jesus says these words, the city of Jerusalem fell, 70 AD. You can check it out. It's a historical moment. The Roman Empire comes and destroys the city of Jerusalem. A lot of blood, a lot of walls crumbling, falling upon the people, right? The Roman armies destroy the city. Jesus knew that this day was going to come. This way of violence, this way of the sword, this way of hatred, it's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the king. It's not the way of the kingdom. And those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And God's kingdom offers a radically different picture of how to live. It's a kingdom of peacemakers. It's a kingdom of those who will love their enemies. It's a kingdom of those who will pray for those who persecute them. It's a kingdom of people who will turn the other cheek, who go the extra mile, who place bandages on the wounds of their enemies. And so Jesus says, turn. Turn around from your violence, from your hatred. 
It will only be worse for you unless we collectively, as a people, turn from our wicked ways. And so he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. What's he talking? Is he talking about heaven? Is he talking about hell? Is he talking about judgment? Is he talking about the afterlife? No. No. He's talking about now. He's warning Israel that they are on a road to destruction. If you keep living with this hatred towards Pilate, this hatred towards Rome, then you can count on a lot more blood in the temple. You can count on a lot more walls crumbling down on innocent people. Literally, the walls of Jerusalem crumble in 70 AD. So N.T. Wright says this, Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to change direction, to abandon the crazy flight into national rebellion against Rome, will suffer the consequences. Those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Okay, hope this is making sense so far. Jesus then explains himself, and he shares a parable, right? He's a great teacher, and so he then shares a parable. He says this, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. All right, Jesus was able to draw people in by his use of stories, and he tells a story about a fig tree. So in your mind, picture there's a vineyard, big vineyard, but there's a fig tree there in the vineyard. And because he's an amazing teacher, he is drawing on images that are found in the Old Testament. Did you know that in the Old Testament, Israel is, is likened to a fig tree? In Jeremiah 8 and in Micah 7, We see Israel as a fig tree. And the question is, is this fig tree producing fruit? Is this a healthy tree? Is it benefiting others? Or is it a fruitless tree? You'll be interested to note that there's another moment when Jesus curses a fig tree. He walks by a fig tree, and there's no fruit on it. And he curses the fig tree. One of those beautiful moments in the Bible when Jesus speaks to trees, right? (laughs) Love it. And what's he doing? Well, right after he looks at this fig tree without fruit, where does he go? Does anyone know? Shout it out. He goes into the temple. And what does he do? Yeah, he turns over the tables. He turns over the tables in the temple. And he turns over these tables because the money changers were there and they were stealing from the people. And he says, this house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so this fig tree represented Israel, the fruit of the people. Are they bearing fruit? Are they truly following God? Or are they bent on their own, you know, evil ways? Again, fig tree, symbol for Israel. And there's no fruit. But in the parable, notice that there's no fruit on the fig tree, but there's a window of mercy. There's a time of opportunity. And by the way, in a second, we want to talk about this. You and I, when we think about repentance in our own lives, there's a window, a time of grace, time of mercy, an opportunity to turn. So we read this, verse 8, Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. 
So there's a year. There's a year left, a window of mercy. And Jesus is saying, we need to see the fruit here, people. And what's the fruit? Repentance. Repentance of people who are turning around, who are abandoning their ways, their evil ways, and turning towards God. The fruit of repentance. Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. He's looking for a people who will turn from their ways of death and move towards the life of God. Now again, the way Israel was living, thinking, acting, and fighting would lead to their own destruction. 70 AD, Jerusalem, right? Falls to Rome. The only way out is to follow Jesus' way. The only way to have life would be to follow his way, to join his movement, his government, his kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God is the government of God. Jesus is coming and he's saying, hey, new government in town. There's a new way to do things. And to be part of his government of peace, reconciliation, love of neighbor, peacemaking, and love of enemy. It's the only way you're going to get out of this, Israel. It's the only way. There's only one way out of this burning house, and it will not come with a sword. Now, you might be wondering, did anyone take Jesus up on, this, on his offer to turn around and to repent? Yes. And we call that group Christians, right? We call that group the church. The early followers of Jesus took Jesus up on his offer to repent, to turn from violence and revolution and to turn towards Jesus and his way of peace. The first disciples of Jesus who made up the church, they turned away from violent nationalism and followed the Prince of Peace. They laid down their swords. They loved their enemies. They became a peaceful counterculture. They were peacemakers. Not only that, historians show us that they were pacifists. They would not join the militaries. They would not take up swords against their neighbors. This Jesus movement is still growing around the world for all who wish to follow the Prince of Peace. So, just to summarize, Jesus sees his people walking away from a life towards death, a life that leads to death. He wants them to turn and to move towards the way that brings life and life to the full. All right, so what does this mean for us? Well, as we begin to bridge it to our day, uh, you may or may not relate to this story, right? So for you today, maybe you're coming and you're like, I'm not struggling with hatred or bitterness or anger, you know, or a desire for violence or something like that, right? But some of you are. Some of you here in this room would say, actually, that's exactly what I carry with me, is a, is a, is a deep anger towards my enemy. And so for you, this is very practical. But what I want to do is I want to widen this a bit to talk about all the paths, all the decisions, all the ways in which you and I are taking steps, some of them small, some of them seem like little tiny seeds or like an inch in a certain direction that Jesus knows the full arc of that will lead to pain. 
Can you think of any? Can you think of any decisions, no matter how small, that you're making that might lead to destruction, that might lead towards pain? Jesus is here. He stands in this room, and he loves us. What would he say to you? What does he say to me? And he watches the way in which we think and make decisions. And no matter how small, he's watching these little moves that lead to death, to pain, to bitterness, to anger, to sadness, to frustration, to addiction, to multiple forms of slavery. As we dive into the topic of repentance, I just would just allow the Holy Spirit to bring, bring some of these things to mind. And just to be aware As these things come into your mind, God is a good father, and we're going to sing about that in a number of minutes, and he brings a gentle conviction, but not a condemnation, right? You are worthless. No, that's a lie that comes from the enemy. That's a word of condemnation, right? That's not the father, but a gentle conviction, a need to turn, right? That's the voice of the father. So Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he looks at me, he looks at Matthew, and he says, unless, Matthew, you turn from that thing, no matter how small, that thing, that habit, that way of thinking, that way of speaking, that way of spending, that way of believing, It will lead to places of pain and destruction. And this should be nothing new to us as Christians because one of the very first stories in the scriptures is the story of Adam and Eve, our ancestors, who looked at two trees and both looked beautiful. And one was the tree of life and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both trees look beautiful, but one is a false tree of life. This false tree will promise life, but if you eat of it, you'll die. So eating from the tree becomes this way in which we take authority to define good and evil. We're the kings and queens of our own life, thank you very much. We'll eat from this tree. It looks pleasing to the eye. And so to eat from that tree is to trust my own definition of good and evil. It's to turn away from God's definition of good and evil and to define it myself. And the fruit always tastes so good when you first take a bite. But it will lead to death. John Tyson, pastor in New York, says it this way. He says, sin is the sovereignty of self. I, I, I take full control over what is good and evil in my life, right? And it leads to pain. Some of you have picked up a piece of wood and you've moved your hand along the piece of wood and you know that when you move it with the grain, it, it's smooth, right? But as soon as your hand goes against the grain, it brings slivers, splinters into your hand. 
And I, and I, think, I think that image helps when we talk about the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not easy. Don't, this is not what I'm saying. It's not like easy, but it's good. And so your hand can move along the surface in a way of obedience and truth and walking in the light and all things good, true and beautiful. But your hand moves the opposite way and it will lead to pain. And that's me defining what's good. And so then I say to myself, bitterness is okay for me. I'll define my own sexual ethic. I'll define and make choices about how I'll spend my money. I'll decide how to use my tongue and how I speak to others. I'll decide whether forgiveness works for me. I'll choose to treat creation in the way I want to. I'll make the kind of call on the kind of relationships I would like to have. And I'll decide what to do with my life. And all of this is the sin of the sovereignty of self. And I take from the fruit of that tree, and it tastes so good to start. I just want to give an example um, of an emotional affair. An emotional affair. So um, it, it, it can begin, and as I work with a lot of uh, men in our church, this is, this is the lie where it starts. It starts off where this is a friendship uh, with someone who is not your spouse, who it feels right. So you take from that tree, and it tastes good because there's a deep friendship there, and there's a connection, and there's a, there's a warmth there, right? And then there's a lingering there, Right? And there's a little bit too much time spent there. And there is this attachment that is formed there. And you and I only need to play out the full arc of the sin. Hollywood, uh, John Tyson actually made a good point. He said, Hollywood never plays out the full arc of the decisions that we make, right? The movie ends and the credits come up and it looks like two people fell in love and it was the right thing but you never see the full implications of the arc of sin, right? That wouldn't make for a good movie, you know? No one wants to see that because it's painful. It leads to pain. And, and for some, they, for some it, it, it may not even lead immediately to your own pain. Actually, it's a lot of joy for you because you found someone to connect with, but it leads to pain in the lives of your spouse and of your children. And we hear the phrase, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself, right? It comes from a line in Shakespeare's Hamlet, to thine own self be true. But Shakespeare knew that that needed to go come from the mouth of Polonius. Some of you who are familiar with Hamlet will know that Polonius is the loudmouth fool. He's a fool who's eventually killed and who's a counselor to the villain, Claudius. So this is not wisdom. We've taken it as some form of wisdom. It's not wise. Shakespeare knew that. It's in the mouth of Polonius, to thine own self be true. This is one of the most dangerous things you can say to somebody. And Shakespeare knew that. See, I've got, I've got two choices. To trust the way of Jesus the King that leads to life and life to the full, or the way of my own kingdom in my own definition of good and evil? Will I live according to the sovereignty of self 
or according to the goodness of my Father who loves me and gave himself for me. St. Augustine wrote, without you, what am I to myself other than a guide to my own self-destruction? I'd like to argue that the doctrine of sin is incredibly liberating. It's really good news. Let me explain why. Like a doctor and undiagnosed pain, some of you in the room have experienced real physical pain. But what has made the physical pain worse is that for a long time, no doctor could give you an answer for that pain. And that felt unbearable. The pain alone was unbearable, but the, but the undiagnosed part, like the, the no plan, there's no plan. There's not even a word for what you're experiencing. It's worse. It, it, it brings this claustrophobia to the pain, right? But all of a sudden, you sit in front of a doctor who says, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Here's a, there's a word for it. Here it is. And here's the treatment plan. Whew. Now, what happened there? Was there a healing? Well, not really. You still got the pain. But what, you, but what you have now is clarity. You now know there's something wrong and there's a name for it. And could I suggest that the Christian doctrine of sin plays out in the same way? Once I have clarity that this is wrong, that this is not right, that this pain or this lack of joy or this anxiety or this fear that I've been having or this way in which I just keep hitting dead ends, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? And then all of a sudden, someone comes and says, well, Check this out. There's a few ways in which you are living according to the self. And it's bringing pain into your life. It's good news. Sin. <laughs> Call it what it is. It's, it's the doctor diagnosing the problem. And now I have hope for, your, for a cure. Now I get it. G.K. Chesterton, uh, the British apologist, he found such joy in the doctrine of sin because it gave clarity to what was wrong inside of him. And he writes this, he says, quote, all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason. It had always been trying to prove that we fit into the world. The Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit into the world. Now, I really was happy for I had learned that man is a monstrosity. Hold on, just pause, just so you know. He was a barrel of laughs, this guy. Like, honestly, he was just a lot of fun. So he's probably saying this smiling and beaming, right? Hey, I found out I was a monstrosity. Good news, right? He says this, the modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place and I had still felt depressed, but I had learned that I was in the wrong place and my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. Ah, somebody told me what was wrong with me. And now I've got clarity. So good news, there's something wrong with you. You know? Good news. And God's a good father. And he comes to his children and he says, I don't want you to live that way. I want you to turn. And I'm not here to condemn you as my child. No, it's because I love you that I want to hold up a mirror and to go, this is not good. You're a fig tree without fruit. I want you to bear fruit. I want to offer this time of mercy to you to turn, to make some adjustments, to walk away from the lies 
and the habits. Because I feel like there's a frustration. Like some of us are are going, no wonder this relationship thing isn't working. No wonder I always feel frustrated. No wonder I can't find joy. No wonder I feel confused. No wonder it feels like I keep hitting dead ends. I am eating from the wrong tree. And I'm seeing a pattern in my life of defining what is good as evil and what is evil as good and it's not working. And I need to get off this train quick. And the quicker we can jump off that kind of train and hop on God's train, the better, right? The faster we can move towards healing. And so remember just what I said earlier, conviction versus condemnation. In the next number of minutes, I hope that the Spirit will just allow you to feel a gentle conviction and not the condemnation of the lies of the enemy. In my life, when I think about that, I could almost boil everything that is sinful in my life down to self-centeredness. I'm so self-centered. It's the root of all the problems that I deal with. And I have realized that I can be a pastor without the character of Jesus. And that, uh, that's a scary thing, I believe. Many of us as pastors can be pastors because it's a career and we base it on our education and we base it on certain kinds of training and you can go quite a long time with just those things. Saying the right things, doing the right things, right? but you can go quite far without the character of Jesus. And I find that scary. I don't want that. I know in your life, I'm sure you don't want that either. That none of us, as we're following Jesus, want to do it without the character of Christ. And I know that God has deep healing in store for me when it comes to the self-centered nature of Matthew's heart. Something is wrong, and the first step is to admit it. Uh, The Greek for repent is metanoia, which is a change of mind. And I also love the Hebrew word shuv, which is to turn and to walk the other way. So it's a change of mind, but it's also a change of position, right? To turn and walk the other way. And when I turn, I'm not just turning from sin, I'm turning to the love of God. I'm turning towards the arms of the Father, that's repentance. Repentance is not just, I'll stop doing wrong. It's, it's, I turn, I put my back to the wrong because I'm putting my entire life towards the beautiful, powerful arms of my loving Father. That's repentance, is to come running towards the Father. And so I repent, I confess, I turn, and the best way to do that is to find a trusted Christian and to sit down with them and then just to say it, to confess it, and to confess 100% of it, because Christians are great at confessing 80%. And that final 20 is where you'll walk in the light. He said, this is my problem. This is the pain, and it won't be easy. And for many of us, there will be consequences for that. But it's okay, because God loves you, 
and he disciplines his children in a beautiful way with lots of love and care. And so we come and we sit with a trusted brother or sister and we confess our sin. And then if you're the one that, you're, that someone's confessing to, you remind that person of the good news of the gospel, that the power of the cross can cleanse them from sin, that the resurrection of our Lord can lead to new life, and that they are called to be disciples. Um, and this is not just to enable bad behavior, but it's actually to change, to literally change, and to walk in newness of life. I love John Stott who writes, Christianity is the only religion in the world that takes sin seriously and offers a satisfactory remedy for it. And the way to enjoy this remedy is not to deny the disease, but to confess it. Don't deny it. <laughs> confess it. Right? Many of us in the room have been true victims of sin. I need to say that before I say this. And many of us in the room love to be the victim and to take no ownership of responsibility. And that is something I've got to wrestle with. There are times in my life when people have actually wronged me, right, for sure. But there are many times in my life where I'd prefer to be the victim than to be the one who did the wrong thing. And the best thing to do, the quickest way out of that trap is to confess our sin. To confess is to tell the truth, that's it to be honest before God and others about the ways in which we're eating from the wrong tree and to walk in the light. Frederick Buechner says, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the golden gate bridge, <laughs> a new connection with God. And that's what we want today. Northingly, I want to remind you of the power of the blood of Christ at the cross and the power of the resurrection um, that gives you new life. And there is this beautiful road to life that is before you. Will you take it? First John 1 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we come again to the cross. I'll invite our worship team up. We're gonna take communion here together as a family. Would you take the bread and the cup? And as we come to the table, I wanna provide a brief quiet moment where you and I can come before the Lord and to begin the process of being open and honest about our sin. So would you take a minute and begin to confess your sins.